0: This evening, we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the subject being the goal of that choice in the words, holy, without blemish, accepted in the beloved. It is our custom to read a portion of scripture together at this meeting, and those who are listening to this recording May would like to share in it. If so, will you switch off for a moment and read together with us the Epistle of Jude. Those of us who have just read this Epistle of Jude are very conscious of the awful condition that seems to prevail the spots the terrible statement concerning Sodom and Gomorrah and Cain and Kor and the garments spotted by the flesh. And yet, the first verse addresses these as sanctified, and the last doxology, glories in the fact that God is able to present them faultless. And so, we are going to consider this evening, in the Epistle to the Ephesians, Words addressed to some who were without God, without Christ, in the flesh and in the world, and yet chosen, not merely for glory, not merely for redemption, but chosen that they might be holy. So should we turn to Ephesians once more, the first chapter, verse 4, 5 and 6. We've already considered the choice before the overthrow of the world, and we have looked at the great purpose which is embedded in the word adoption. But we now come back in order to link together the words of chapter, of verse 4 that you should be holy and without blame with the words of verse 6 he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And that will round off the first section of this wonderful epistle, The Will of the Father. When you think about this expression, the word holy, you're you're conscious, aren't you? You're dealing with a word which stands separated from general conversation. In the ordinary case of everyday life, you speak about a a businessman. Will you say he's a man of integrity? You speak about the Prime Minister, and you speak about all his various qualities, but nobody ever raises a question and says, is that leader of that business house a holy man? Is the Prime Minister holy? Is the General of the Army holy? Is the Admiral of the Fleet holy? Never comes in. People will wonder what you were talking about. So you see, this is super-mundane. It's nothing to do with the affairs of this world. It does not come in. It's something entirely to do with God and his ultimate purpose. Now, holiness is not righteousness. Or I ought to put it the other way. Righteousness is only a section of holiness. Holiness is far faster, far richer, and I'm not sure whether any of us can really visualise what it really contains. We can only gather from the way in which it is used, both in type and symbol, in the Old Testament regulations, for the difference between clean and unclean beasts and so on, and the emphasis upon sanctification and its association with cleansing in the New Testament to get a little idea of this destiny that awaits us. But here it is, chosen, that we should be holy. Well, now this is expanded, and perhaps the very next words indicate the way the Lord stoops. He says the one all-covering word holy, but then he goes on to say, without blame. Well, of course, holiness must be without blame, and especially when you know this word without blame means without blemish. So we're going to consider the way in which this uh, uh, word is used. I just uh, draw your attention to some of the outstanding themes which are spoken of as being holy in the scriptures, the scriptures themselves. Romans, the first chapter, when it speaks about the gospel, when it speaks about the Son of God set forth in the gospel. The next very second verse of the first chapter speaks about the way in which that is embedded in the holy scriptures. And even though the law is weak because of the flesh, Romans the seventh chapter says that the law is holy, even though it connects. And then we associate both in the actual physical temple and in the spiritual reference to a temple, the word holy. And so we get it in this Ephesians, chapter 2. And those who are associated with it are the apostles and prophets. This grows into an holy temple in the Lord. And in chapter 3, those very apostles and prophets are themselves said to be holy. So you see, the word is used, but apparently always with discrimination. And then we get that wonderful uh, word that Peter uses, be ye holy, for I am holy, said the Lord. So however much it may be, apparently beyond the possibility of our attainment, it's not without possibility for God has predestinated that every member of the body of Christ shall be holy. And if we would sink in despair if we were now to tell one another that we have got to uh, gird up our loins and we've got to fight the good fight of faith and we've got to accomplish this holiness. For so we know before we start, we never could attain it. This must be like life itself, the very gift of God. But it doesn't mean to say we are indifferent. We walk in harmony with truth as far as we may. We seek to put on the armour of light. We stand clothed in righteousness. We seek to walk worthy of our calling. We remember that we are called saints, even though we may not sometimes be very saintly. And these are just contributory factors helping us uh, to be sort of conscious of the goal that's in front of us, and very conscious of our limitations, and inability to achieve it by ourselves. But I don't think we should do much good by harping on that string. Let's see what God has said about it, and then we may take heart and be in pain. First of all, we'll take this word without blame. Without blame. If you look at chapter 5, verse 27, you'll have the same word again. Here it is in another context. Chapter five twenty-seven, That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy. So here we're getting another uh, sort of view of holiness. It is something where there is no spot or wrinkle. A spot May be a defilement, but a wrinkle may come from care and anxiety, but neither of them can ever be involved in the word holiness. It's absolute serenity, holiness, a condition of mind and heart that none of us have ever touched yet, that we're going to be presented like that, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now you see, the same epistle puts without blame in the first chapter, and without blemish in the fifth. And strictly speaking, the word should be without blemish. We'll see that again presently. When you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, in order to get another passage which speaks of of the same line of teaching. Colossians 1.22, is the body of his flesh through death to present you holy. Do you notice that in Jude it's to present you, it's in Ephesians it's to present you, and in Colossians it's to present you? This is the garb in which you will be presented at court. (coughs) Nothing short and nothing less than holiness, spotlessness. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now that word unblameable is the word without blemish. So three times we have it. And it's in his sight. Now the word is in the Greek aemomos. A meaning the the negative and the word molos being a spot. I think perhaps you ought to uh, get one or two references to help you to consider that. And we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 where we have this word and Nine fourteen. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit Offered himself without spot to God. Isn't it marvellous? The very self-saving words are used of Christ's spotless offering that are going to be used of you and me. Now that seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But that's the only definition we can get from the grace of God, for that sounds too good to be true. This is the gift of God. Without spot, he presented himself to God. And that is the word used of us in Ephesians. In 2 Peter, chapter 2.13, we've got the word mobos. That is to say, without the negative, so we might as well get what value there is from that verse. There's a double reference. 2 Peter 2.13, As you receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, spots they are, and blemishes. So if you've got spots, you've got blemishes. And if you're without blemish, you're without spot. You see, it's obvious, isn't it? But this is insisted upon, isn't it? Makes you think of that wonderful word embedded in the Song of Solomon. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. And that has been very much spiritualised until it's almost spiritualised away, but that can be lifted out of its context and will be remembered by all those who are saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now, this question of being without blemish and without spite is essentially connected with temple, priest and sacrifice. We've already seen it is so in Hebrews. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 21 and Leviticus chapter 22. And this will give us the type, the physical spotlessness, which will be a picture of the spiritual reality. Leviticus 21, verse 17 and 18. Leviticus 21, 17, speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of the seed of thy seed in their generations. He's speaking to Aaron, and he's speaking about those who, according to national birth and succession, would have been priests. But if one of the seed of Aaron should have any one of these blemishes, he must be kept from the priesthood, because... That would be an an, an evil element entering into this symbol of spotlessness. Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations, that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or lame, or he that hath a flat nose or anything superfluous, Or a man that is broken-footed, or a dwarf, or that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or stand, or have his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest, shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. How searching those words are when you translate them again into spiritual terms and say, and we are the people who are exempt, we haven't any of these, either superfluous or lacking parts or spots or wrinkles or any such thing. It's most obvious we could never say it from ourselves. If we could delude ourselves that we've reached this, none of our friends and those who have to live with us will believe us for five minutes. So here we have something which we've got to accept. Because God says so. And because he points us to the body of his flesh through death as the moving cause, and we can only stand silent and bow in his presence and accept this most marvelous of all qualifications for glory. Now that is spoken of the priest. Now in chapter 22, it's repeated in some measure, about this sacrifice. I think we must be uh, keen enough to see those verses as well. Chapter 22, verse 19. Ye shall offer at your own will a male without blemish of the bees, of the sheep, or of the goats. But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. So the priest could not approach and the sacrifice could not be accepted if it had any of these spots, wrinkles, blemishes, or other parts. And whosoever offers a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in bees or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. Here's another word coming in perfect. And you don't know how the Epistle to the Hebrews insists upon perfection, both of the priesthood, the sacrifice, the tabernacle, and all things to do with the spiritual realities of which the are types and Chattons. It shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Blind or broken or maimed or having a wend or scurvy or scant, ye shall not offer these things unto the Lord, nor make any an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. Now I've insisted on that rather, read those passages, that we may be very conscious in the back of our mind what the Lord intended when he said that you were chosen in him before the overthrow of the world, that you should be holy and without blemish. Fancy. That's what he has intended. That's what he's going to do. For in the body of his flesh through death he is going to present you holy and without blemish. And we stand with bare hearts, wondering at the grace that could do so so that for such as we are. Well, now we're going to take another step and turn to Colossians once again, because Colossians adds another term, and a very enlightening term it is too. Colossians chapter 1. I'll read the verse again, verse 22 in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable, now he adds this next word, and unreprovable, in his sight. Unreprovable. Now if the first word, without blemish, takes us to the temple, and the priest, and the sacrifice, the second word, unreprovable, takes us to the law court. And here we are going to be once more set forth as being untouchable in a court of law and unreprovable in the temple or in connection with the sacrifice. From two points of view. I won't give you all the references, but there's quite a bunch of them in the Acts of the Apostles, this particular word, without reproof. I'll give you one, the 19th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 40. And then I think we can pass on to one in the Epistle to the Romans. The Acts of the Apostles, 19th chapter, verse 40. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day in upright, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse we are in danger to be called in question. That's a word. Colossians says that so wonderful is the work of Christ on our account that we shall never be in a position to be called in question. And this has to do with the court of law, as you will see in verse 38. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies... Let them please one another. It's to do with the law Now we turn to Romans, the eighth chapter, which gives us the last of these words which we've been just touching upon in the Acts, and gives us, which gives us this other word in Colossians. Romans 8, 33, that we will read from verse 31 because of its very wonderful introduction. What should we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Because we are consciously dealing with things that no man can attain to by himself. But if God be for us, who could intimidate us? Who could call us in question? And then, instead of going straight on to his subject, he stops and says, think of the character of that God we're dealing with. He that spared not his own son, but but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now he's back on his thought again. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's the word that gives us the word in Colossians. Who shall call anybody in question in the law court of God? The answer is, it is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? The answer is it is Christ that died. But he goes on, he rather that he's risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God? And the right hand of God is very much insisted upon in connection with the present session of Christ. And when you read the Old Testament and discover that the right hand is where the accuser stands, what a blessing for The Lord Jesus Christ himself is occupying the place where the accuser should stand in the law court. But when I look into his face I see no accuser, I see one who loved me and died for me, that I may never know condemnation or separation. I suppose you've got to be very decorous when you're in the presence of God, but I shouldn't be at all surprised if somebody will sing out hallelujah up there. Won't be able to repress it and I don't think God will say, turn him out. Obviously, here's our position, as blemishless as the accepted sacrifice, as blemishless as the accepted priest, and absolutely acquitted in the law court of God. Well now, we'll turn to other aspects of this teaching, and that is waiting us First of all, in Ephesians chapter 5, we've got another one of the agents that helped to bring this about. There is the basic agency, already referred to more than once in Colossians. It's the body of his flesh through death. Do remember, never stop. Don't say in the body of his flesh. Because if Christ remained in the flesh, it would be an unread veil that would keep us out of the presence of God. The sheer perfectness of the human life that walked the streets of Jerusalem and by the shore of Galilee condemns us, doesn't save us. No. The more perfect he was, the worse we should be in, a, in contrast. But this is in the body of his flesh through death. It's by that sacrifice that we reach this goal. That's one. But now there's another way in which this is helped, And this has to do with uh, more our experience of things. So we're back again in Ephesians 5. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So there's another work going on. There is a cleansing process going on. A cleansing not by dipping in physical water, but by the washing of the water by the word. Now ye are clean, he said in John's Gospel, by the word which I have spoken unto you. So the very preaching of the word not only brings salvation to the sinner, but to bring cleansing to those who have passed from death. Unto life. So here's another way in which this wonderful preparation is going on. And if we turn to the first epistle of John, we get another very well known and precious statement. The first epistle of John, the first chapter. There's an alternation in these verses between what we say and what we do. Verse 6, if we say. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 10, if we say, and you know there are some people who keep on saying, but that's not enough. So shall we read this? Verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie, and do not the truth. John is said to be the apostle of love, and in his short epistle he calls people liars more than anybody else in the New Testament. So that may be what love should do, not smother things up, but face them. But it's no love that doesn't warn a person of the danger in which he's running. But if we walk in the light, this is in contrast to saying, as he is in the light, and that is a very high standard, isn't it? We have fellowship one with another, is that so? Even as he is in the light, yes. Well, you must be a perfect person. Well, not in myself. But I've got a perfect cleansing. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, the continuous present, as this is called, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, goes on cleansing us. It's not enough to say just it. It's a continuous present. Goes on cleansing us from all sin. So there's the provision. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, he sees to it that we are cleansed. So we are cleansed by the water of the word. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And if you come now to Titus, chapter 2. The epistle of Titus, chapter 2. You will see another way in which these people who once were darkness and now light in the Lord are being prepared for their glorious station presently. It says in chapter 2, I'm just jumping through the first, the verses 11 and 12 to pick out the essential words. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us that we should look, living, look, no, live, looking for that blessed hope. You see, just straight on like that. Live looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, now that's the one side, from, away from, and purify unto, that's the other side, not merely away from, but unto, purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And there's another aspect that you can lift out from many of these passages. It's to present unto himself. It's to purify unto himself. Oh, it's very, very intimate and very, very personal in that day. And then once more, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24. He speaks in verse 22 of putting off concerning the former conversation, the old man, and he speaks in verse 24 of putting on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Literally, holiness of truth. True holiness. So here again there is this provision being made. And you cannot put on the new man without yourself being a part of the new creation. This is only the external manifestation of an eternal change that grace has wrought. Well, as we're dealing with this question of cleansing, it's come in the washing of the water, uh, I think we should spare a moment to insist upon the uh, passage which we have in John 13, although most of you are acquainted with it. John 13, the second portion of John opens with this chapter. And in full consciousness, that the Savior was to depart out of this world unto the Father. The full consciousness, verse 3, that he was come from God and that he went to God. No idea of having he himself of his glory, that he didn't know who he was. He was come from God and he went to God. And it was that one, in the full consciousness of who he was, that took a towel and girded himself and began to wash the disciples' feet. And you remember when he came to Peter, Peter objected. And he said, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then of course, impetuous Peter went the other extreme. He said, Lord, not his feet only, but also his hands and his head. Well, we can sympathize with that, can't we? And then that led to the rebuke which our Lord gave and the teaching which it contained. Now, verse 10 in the authorized version reads, Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not to say what, needeth not say to wash his feet, but is clean every week. Now in that verse, we have the word wash twice. But in the words which our Saviour has recorded to us, today, there are two distinct words. We'll put them again. Jesus says to him, he that hath been bathed, hath been bathed, that's complete. Not merely rinsing, not merely washing. He that hath been bathed, needeth not save to rinse, wash, his feet, but his clean every week. So there is one cleansing which is sufficient for all time. And there's a continual daily contact with this world and our pilgrim journey that has to be dealt with moment by moment. Here, by water, first epistle of John, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son goes on cleansing us from all sin. Coming back to Colossians chapter 1, there's another word which bears upon this sort of this perfect position which we should occupy here in the sight of God. Colossians 1 verse 12. <coughs> Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The words are in the light, and they are balanced in verse 22 by in his sight. Or we can lift the words out of the gospel, this thing is not done in a corner. It's in the light, right out into that searchlight of God's presence, where it's utterly impossible for any darkness to hide, any spot to remain without being vividly exposed. Now what does it mean when it says he hath made us meet? Well this word means, and is so translated elsewhere, to be sufficient. Perhaps I'll give you one passage as a test. <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 reads like this. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of it as of ourselves, But our sufficiency is of God. So you see what this is suggesting? Believer, have you ever sometimes had a sort of a little terrifying thought? You're making your way through this wilderness of a world onto glory. And you know full well that scripture indicates that I have not seen, or he have heard, what it's like there. You only can just vaguely guess that you're conscious that the demands that will be made then will be insuperable. You never can meet them yourself. Isn't it good to be able to thank God who has made us all sufficient for whatever the demands may be? We don't have to even to pack our bag and see that we've got everything in it. He's going to pack the bag and see we've got everything in it. Because we haven't got anything here that we can take and when we got there there wouldn't be any use. But whatever you need, a robe of righteousness, garments of salvation, and anything else, like the Apostle when he'd gone through the he says, and if there be any other creature, it will not be able to separate us And we say, if there be any other demand that we've never thought of, it's all met in the perfect acceptance which we've already received in Christ. So that is sufficient. Whenever we come to the summing up of this glorious choice of the Father, in the words of Ephesians 1, with which we close this study this evening, verse 6, to the praise Of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That's summing it all up. It sums it all up. The spiritual blessings, the heavenly places, the choice before the foundation of the world, the adoption, it's all summed up in being accepted in the beloved. But it's not quite true to the statement acceptance is not so much a thought here. The only occurrence of the word translated accepted, the only other occurrence, is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. So I think as this is a part of our inheritance, we must look and see what it says there. Luke, chapter 1, verse 28. I don't know whether any of our friends in Scotland will be ever listening to this record, but they used to tweet me when I went to Scotland years ago, they said, why do you say Luke? Well, I said, why should I say Luke? So we may have a little game with each other, but I say Luke. And here it is, chapter 1, 28. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. That word highly favoured is this word accepted, and it occurs nowhere else. Is it extraordinary that the only other time when this word is used, it's used by an angel to the woman that was marked off from all the rest of the creation to be the mother of the Messiah. She was highly favoured, if anyone was, until we come along, and we're as highly favoured, if perhaps even more so. Look at it; He has highly favoured us. And then he doesn't say any in Christ. Who uses the word in Christ or in Christ Jesus? Verse 1, faithful, in Christ Jesus. We have at the end of verse 3, in heavenly places, in Christ. And then instead of saying in Christ again, it says chosen us in Him. So it's still in Christ. And again, we have after this, in whom we have redemption, that's still in Christ. Oh yes, it's all here, but it doesn't say so in verse 6. The word Christ isn't there. It's highly favoured in the Beloved. The Beloved. And if you look at the the way in which that word is used, you'll find that it's used sparingly. The more you say these words, the more common they become the less marvellous they are. When we come to Colossians, we have another extraordinary way of putting it. We have been delivered from the authority of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's the way it's put. And when it does speak about the love of Christ in Ephesians, it warns you, you're out to study something that you'll never be able to encompass. And to know the love of Christ, which eclipses knowledge. That's it. And we're in Him. And we're in Him as the beloved one. There's nothing God will spare, is He? Nothing you hold back while He sees you in His beloved Son. And you notice the insistence in verse, in chapter 2 verse 7. When at last we do get to glory, when at last we do stand there presented, when at last we are in all the glory that this Son of His has made our own, then I feel it so wonderful, for it all come down again, come down again to a most holy word, listen to it, chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace, it is kindness. Kindness. The last word is kindness. Not magnificence. Not glory that's dazzling, but kindness. And so we've got part, haven't we? To wait that day, conscious all the time we are unworthy, but conscious all the time that we're not going to hang our heads, we're not going to shuffle our feet, we're not going to stand outside and timidly knock. We have boldness of access now. What would it be then? One of the things that you should miss when you go into your own home, you should not see, nailed on the door as you enter, a copy of the factory act. Clocking in and clocking out. Oh, no, just leave that outside. So when we get to door. All the barriers got. There you are know, some people who conjure up heaven as a most magnificent temple and a most marvellous ritual but when John was going to describe the temple in the New Jerusalem he got a shot when he said I saw no temple there good thing too so long as there's a temple there's a barrier so long as there's a priest, there's a barrier so long as there's a sacrifice there's a barrier But it's the glory of the work of Christ that he so completely accomplishes it that all those titles vanish. They're not perpetuated into the eternal state. No more needed. The Lamb is the light thereof. The Lamb is the temple in the New Jerusalem. And he will be that and more when glory dawns. So one more word and I think we must finish. And that is the emphasis upon the word Presentation. I don't think we can take this too far, but just a word or two. It says in uh, Ephesians, we've looked at it before, that this holiness and spotlessness is associated with the fact that we're going to be presented. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not only spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And Colossians, again, says, in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unnameable and unreprovable in his sight. There's the two. But before the ink is dry, almost, the Apostle says, in verse 28 of the same chapter, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. But what's this mean? This means something which he was going to do. And it was something associated with warning every man. So this isn't our standing in Christ. But this is just the other side of the story. That although we have to admit that nothing that we've done, not by works of righteousness which we've accomplished, could ever reach this standard, yet on the other hand, there must be no drifting, there must be no dallying, There must be no sort of uh, being without care and thought. So he says I've got a presentation to make as well don't forget. You've got one presentation which is based upon the offering of Christ. And there's another presentation which is based upon your comportment and the way in which you walk worthy of this calling. But that opens the door for another avenue of teaching altogether. And I think we'll say, so far as our study this evening is concerned, it would be perhaps better to stay here than cumber our thoughts with extraneous matter. Let us rejoice then, that we have been considering the first section of this opening part of Ephesians, the will of the Father, choosing us, giving us this destiny, and making it so absolutely certain. Now the very next verse tells us how needy we were, but the very next verse says in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Oh yes, that's a very salutary thing, because we have to admit that it is not in ourselves, but only in his love and grace that these things are possible.